welcome Dr. James Dobson. You know, I found out something that I didn't know before, that your wife, Shirley's maiden name was Deer. Now, how has that worked? I mean, you say Deer and... Well, she's loved it and was reluctant to give it up when she married me. So, I, If I'd done marriage counseling, I would have held her back. I want you to know that. <laughs> I, wrote, I once wrote a poem about her when she was running for homecoming queen. And it's pretty simple. It says, a hundred years ago today, it was on a college campus. A hundred years ago today, a wilderness was here. A man with powder in his gun went forth to hunt a deer. But now that things have changed somewhat, a school has been erected, and a deer with powder on her nose goes forth to be elected. (laughs) (laughs) And she won. She did. And she won. You know, we look upon the two of you and your marriage with two grown children, two grandchildren, and say, boy, you know, he knows everything about the family. I just guess their marriage has been perfect. Yeah. Yeah, well. Is that true? It's not true. We don't, <laughs> we do not have a perfect marriage because Shirley isn't perfect. I see. I <laughs> understand that. <laughs> hey, you mentioned Dare to Discipline. Uh, you know, some of the younger generation is not real wild about what I taught their parents about discipline. And I received a note, a poem from a college student one time who says, when I was a kid, I got spanked because of you. (laughs) (laughs) You get blamed for everything. I get blamed. You you and Shirley have had some uh, moments of uh, conflict, maybe on an airplane, maybe I... You know that story? Well, I I, I don't want to confess any of your sins. Shirley's a very feisty lady. You don't know it. She looks so serene and all of that, but she's a lot of fun. That's really what I fell in love with when we were in college. Uh, but we were flying on a plane one time, and we were on the way to someplace important. I don't remember what it was. Uh, but there was a console between us, and Shirley ordered tomato juice. And I didn't know it. And I was working on a computer or something. I wheeled around, and I hit that glass of tomato juice, and it spilled and landed half of it in her lap. She was wearing a white suit. <laughs> And for some reason, I thought that was funny. (laughs) So I was laughing with my eyes shut, and she poured the other half in my lap. Harmony in the home. It'll work every time. We laughed all the way to a destination. We've when had you a got great off, time. what did they think you did? Well, we had to explain that. We looked like we'd been in a knife fight or something. <laughs> You were in the academic world for, what, 14 plus 17 years and doing research with children in pediatrics and with your advanced degrees. What, what led you to move from that environment to the yeah. calling that came upon your life? What happened there? Well, uh, the Lord had his hand in my back, but I... Uh Uh, was very concerned about what I saw happening in the culture and especially to the family. And it was just unraveling. And I never claimed to be a prophet, but I did foresee today's world. I did see what was happening to the family and that it was unraveling. And uh, 
I just felt like I ought to uh, do something about it. I loved academia, and I loved the work that I was doing there. Uh, but uh, there came a time when uh, I felt it was right to resign. Shirley kept asking me, are you sure? Uh, she had gotten in the habit of eating about three times a day and <laughs> wasn't sure I was making the right decision. But uh, we opened a little two-room office, called it Focus on the Family, and eventually we were on 7,000 stations around the world, heard by 220 million people every day. Uh, so that um, was the Lord's plan for me, and there's no doubt about it looking back. I was there for 33 years, and then I left uh, to uh, start Family Talk. What a ministry. All of us have known of you, and some of us have the privilege of knowing you personally. And to see that you not only write and speak on the family, but you've lived that out in your life. Where did you get a background? Here's a, a scholar, someone in medicine, and all of a sudden you move and have this Christian identity with that holistic approach to life. Where did the Christianity come from? How did you become a Christian? It started almost at birth. I was blessed to have uh, such a godly father, especially, and my mother was a great woman who really understood children. And uh, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, uh, talked about Jesus all the time. I couldn't get away. I mean, uh, <laughs> I grew up knowing about him and, uh, and made an early commitment to the Lord. Can I tell you about sure, that? Sure, absolutely. My dad was a minister, and I was four years old. And I was sitting in the church, wasn't a big church, but we were on the back seat, my mother and me, on the right-hand side. Man, I've got that videotaped in my mind. It was all those years ago, and I can see it. And my dad preached. I don't remember what he had to say, but he, we called it in our church, we opened the altar, and people were coming to the altar, and they were stepping into the aisle. And I didn't ask my mother. I stepped out with them, and I, I walked down that aisle, and I knelt over on the right-hand side and know right where it was, and I knelt, and I, don't, I didn't understand a lot about repentance and all that. I just knew that I needed Jesus, and I bawled like the baby I was, and my dad came off the platform and came over and put his arm around me and prayed for me. My mother was sitting on the front row behind me by that time. And I, I tell you, that was the most significant moment of my life. Isn't that interesting? At four, to hit the pinnacle, because everything that's happened to me since then has been governed by him. I lived a perfect life, and I wish there's some things I could have done better. But uh, I knew that uh, that's something happened. And after church that day, that night, uh, my parents went to the home of some members. I think there was a sickness. They left me in the car. And I remember sitting out there thinking about what had happened to me at that altar hmm. and what it all meant. And I've been grateful for it every moment of my life. But let, let me say to the crowd here, and this may be the important thing I'll have an opportunity to say. Our culture has gone a little crazy. Uh, you know that. that. Does that come as a shock to anybody? There's such foolishness being taught in the public schools 
in some places, California and Colorado and others, they start at between five and nine teaching them about gender uh, nonsense, telling them there's no difference between males and females, and that uh, you can kind of choose, and uh, they don't line up boys and girls anymore because you don't know what they choose, and they may change their minds, but, and then they start telling these kids how they can medically change their gender. It's ridiculous because unborn boys' uh, brains are absolutely awash in testosterone. We know that, and it completely rewires the brain, and it damages the brain. Some people say boys are brain damaged. I, that's not quite accurate, but it's, <laughs> there's some truth in, in that. And girls' brains are awash in estrogen, and that takes them in another direction. We are male and female. Amen. We are different. And thank God for the differences. He made them. <laughs> so boys are not born knowing how to be boys, and they need masculine influence. Uh, if there is, for the single moms here who have boys, uh, if you don't have a husband here, maybe he's gone, maybe he's in the military, wherever it is, he, he needs the influence of a man, a good man, a man who has the right motives. And uh, it is uh, sometimes hard to find, but uh, somebody like my coach, I had a coach when I was in the ninth grade that everybody loved. His name was Craig Ayers. I have not seen him since. But he taught us how to think like a man. Mm. Uh, not only was my dad working on this, but uh, the coach was. And uh, I remember we were sitting in the, in the bleachers one time, and a cute girl walked by, and she was wearing a sweater, and all the guys were hooting and howling and whistling and you know, calling to her and everything. And Coach Ayers took us to the woodshed. He said, you're making fools of yourself. Don't you know that a woman has to be treated with respect? Mm -hmm. You don't yell and hoot and holler like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, I'll never forget it. He, he began teaching me things mm -hmm. there that uh, added to what my dad was teaching. That's what a boy needs. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes it's hard to find in this culture. No, it really is. Now, so a boy's need is the same thing as a girl. Both of them need time. I've said that love is always explained by time. I thought it was original. I got it from one of his books. <laughs> but, uh, and it does. But girls, a father to a boy is one relationship that builds a masculinity. Then a father to the daughter is another thing that's there to build her yeah. femininity, I guess. How would you say L that? Listen, the whole culture knows that boys need fathers. That's not a bulletin. Everybody knows that. What they don't know is that girls need their fathers almost as much as boys do, and maybe more, and it's a whole different way. Like I indicated, we're sexually different. We're made differently. And girls are bonded to their mothers and will be throughout life. Uh, you know, even after marriage, it's the girl that remains in touch and the boys go off with their wives who are in, with their mothers and so on. So there is this 
this need for girls to uh, have a relationship with the fathers, and people don't know that. Fathers don't know that. That a, a little girl defines her femininity from her relationship with her father. He's the first to hold her and cuddle her, first male, first male to kiss her, the first male to tell her, hopefully, that she's pretty and that he admires her, the first to affirm her from a masculine point of view. A little girl desperately needs that because she doesn't come by it through genetics. She has to learn it in the culture, and the father is the one she looks to. He is absolutely critical to her self-esteem and her understanding of why she is valuable and why she is, uh, you know, the gender that God made her to be. Um, I, I want to share with you um, uh, an experience that I had when I was writing Bringing Up Girls. Uh, we had an institute where there were about uh, 80 girls and 80 boys that came, and I invited 40 of those girls to come have lunch in our board room. We've provided a great lunch for them. And afterward, I said, I want to tell you why I brought you here. Now, what's their age about? Their, their ages were junior, senior, and college. In college, okay, okay. Yeah, so they're just getting ready to go out in the world. Most right. of them were about to marry. And uh, I said, I'm writing a book on bringing up girls, and you guys can help me. I would like you to tell me what you think I need to know and to write about. And I opened it to anything they want to say. I mean to tell you, they made a beeline for their fathers. They didn't talk about their mothers. Mm. They talked about their fathers. And mm. one girl began talking, and she, she broke into tears as she was talking about the fact that I'm not angry at my dad, and I'm not bitter about him. He's a good man. He works hard. He takes care of the family. But he is uh, only aware of my brother. He doesn't even see me. Mm. It's as though I'm not there. She said, I'm at this institute. And my dad never pulled me aside and said, why are you going there? And what do you hope to experience there? Mm. Because she wasn't part of his world. Mm. And uh, that, is, that is very, very common. It went from there to the next one and the next one all the way around. All of them were crying. And mm. we had one box of Kleenex that was going <laughs> all the way around and the table. And I would guess you were crying, too. I was crying, too. <laughs> I mean, it, it moved me deeply because they were, they were saying, my, my dad doesn't understand what it is I feel and what I need. Mm -hmm. One of them said, um, my dad will come back down in the morning, and I'm eating breakfast, and he will come down and say, do you know what you're eating? That's too much. That's going, you know where that's going to go? It's going right, to go right to your hips and legs. Mm -hmm. And it, it wounded her, and it made her ache. She wasn't mad at him. She was hurt with him. And uh, it went on around the, the room. Uh, the, the girls, uh, one of them was talking about uh, going uh, to the beach with her parents. And she was riding the back seat, and they were riding in the front seat, and they came to a stoplight. And she had taken off her shoe. And she put her foot without her shoe on the console between the two, mother and father. And her dad looked down at her foot 
And he reached out and put his hand on the foot and caressed it. And he said, you know, honey, you have the most beautiful feet. And she cried. It's the first time he had ever said anything like that to her. And there is this, this deep wound that's there. Uh, I suppose two-thirds of the girls had the same message. How could that be? They didn't even know one another felt that way mm. until they were in that room mm. and they were all sharing their experiences. One of them said that her father was an NC2A football coach, one of the large universities. And she said he was so busy, so very busy. And I never could get his attention. Then she said the only way I could get his attention was to walk with him on the sidelines because mm -hmm. that's the only time that I had access to him. And she said, I always wondered why he loved those boys on the team more than he loved me mm -hmm. because I loved him so much. But there was a third of the group that was there that told Wonderful stories. I wish she could have been there. I mean, it was a powerful moment. One of them said, my dad wasn't like that at all. She said, there were five of us in our family. And every night as we went to bed, he would come down and go to each of our bed and kneel down and touch us on the head and pray for us and tell us how much he loved us mm -hmm. and how much that meant. Uh, another girl said that she... Uh, would wake up about 5 o'clock in the morning and realize there was a light on in the family room. It often happened. And when it did, she would get up and she would go into the family room and she'd find her father sitting in a big chair. And was reading the Bible. And when she came into the room, he said, Oh, honey, I'm so glad you're here. Come over here. Get on my lap. He would climb up on her lap, and then he would open the Bible, and he'd say, you see your name right there? That scripture is for you. I've been praying for you here. And the contribution that made to her sense of worth and personhood was enormous. Mm, thank you. Beautiful, beautiful <laughs> You had a relationship with Ted Bundy. Uh, we know that name, massive murderer. Speak, speak to that, if you would. Ted Bundy, as many of you would know, was one of the most prolific uh, murderers of women uh, in our history. Uh, I got a phone call two years before he was executed from his lawyer. Lawyer said, come when he's going to be executed. We know it's going to happen. Then I come into town, and I'm the only one that's taken into the um, Florida State Prison. We sat around this table and began talking, and he was deeply um, moved by what he was trying to say. He did not in any way blame his parents or anybody else he wanted it known that he had gotten hooked on violent pornography. And he wanted to say, this is the message he brought me down there, is to tell parents, beware of your kids because this stuff is dangerous. Well, pornography is deadly. I shared this with you earlier. When my son Ed was 15 or something, and 
My wife, Joe Beth, read to my boys. I mean, they thought, somebody told her, you read to your children, they'll be readers. And so she read everything, every night, all their lives. And uh, one day she was in his room and she was cleaning and she looked under the bed and there was a Playboy magazine. And so she put it back. When Ed came home, she went to the room. She said, Ed, sit down on the bed here together. She said, you know, we've always read together. Let me show you what I found and let's read this together. We've had no problem with pornography, either one of our three sons. I got to oh. tell you, that will cool you off quicker than anything. <laughs> it really will. Oh, my goodness. Dr. Dobson, you also had a, a wonderful and traumatic experience with somebody we also know, Pete Maravich. Pete Maravich, mm -hmm. man, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And, and tell your encounter with Pete. He may have been one of the top 10 NBA players in history. He left 43 or 44 NC2A records at LSU. Uh, he was one of a kind. He was magic before magic was magic. He was really incredible, the talent that he had. He was only about 6'4", but, uh, you know, he's playing with people seven foot and he, he would go around them. I, I've never seen anything like that. Pete had been uh, a rascal. He was a womanizer. He drank a lot. And uh, he just really didn't live a very moral life. And when he finally, uh, his knees gave out and he left the NBA, uh, he was absolutely lost. He was really looking for Jesus and didn't know it. Mm. And for five years, he stayed in that room uh, in his house and couldn't go out because people hounded him to death for autographs and pictures and so on. And so he, uh, uh, for five years, he was very lonely. And he was in bed one morning, and it was 5 o'clock in the morning, and he heard his name. And it scared him. And he sat up wondering if he dreamed it, and he heard it again. Mm. He got out of bed and gave his heart to the Lord. Mm. And, I mean, he really had a conversion experience. And he couldn't talk to you in that next five years about anything but Jesus. Mm. And, in fact, uh, I had invited him to come out to California to play basketball with us and to be on the radio. It was really audacious. Here I am, a duffer, a bunch of guys that, you know, had never been on an NBA floor, much less played. And yet we wanted him to play with us. And he said, I'd really like to do that. So we played the basketball for about uh, 45 minutes and everybody went to get a drink and Pete and I stayed on the floor and we... Uh, we're just talking to each other. And I said, Pete, how you feel today? You haven't been playing. And he said, I feel great. And I turned to walk away. And for some reason, I, I got about five feet and I turned around and looked at him just in time to see him fall. And he fell hard. He didn't break his fall. And he hit the floor and I thought he was, he had a good sense of humor. I thought he was teasing, even though he fell hard. And I w walked up to him, and I saw that he was in a seizure, and he wasn't breathing. And I started CPR, and I called the other guys, and they worked his heart. We called uh, a uh, paramedic to come 
took about 20 minutes for them to get here, and we never got another heartbeat on him. And it's one of the shocks of my life to have one of the great athletes of the world uh, drop dead and fall and be in your arms. The paramedics allowed us to follow the ambulance to the hospital, and then they allowed us to come into the room and circle his bed, gurney where he was lying. And I had to call his wife and tell her that he wasn't coming home again. Uh, you can't imagine the emotional shock of it all, uh, particularly a man who was talking about Jesus when he died. Uh, but uh, I was besieged by the media, so I went home rather than going to work. And my son, my 17-year-old son, I said, Ryan, I really need to talk to you. And he came into the bedroom. And I said, Ryan, you have to understand that what happened to Pete Maravich and his family today was not an isolated situation. That happens to all of us. Sooner or later, uh, you'll get the phone call about me. And in fact, I had my heart attack two years later on that same floor, about 20 minutes from where Pete had fallen. But I said, Ryan, when that moment comes and you know that I'm in heaven, there's only one thing I want you to remember, and that's to be there. I care about what you accomplish in your life. You're bright. You'll do a lot. But all that is secondary. The thing I want to know is that you are there. Be there. And I'll be looking all over heaven for you on that day. <laughs> 